Hello, friends. Hey, everyone. Hi. <laughs> that was a little messed up. I don't know if you guys saw that, but it definitely froze on my face for like a good like two minutes there. It's okay. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> Gotta have a little lag. Yeah, you know, that's our favorite thing when we have just a wee bit of lag. Eh? <laughs> Uh, anyway, welcome back to a Wednesday mini episode of the Crushed and Pressed podcast. On a Thursday. Oh. <laughs> you really want it to be on Wednesday still. I hear it. I hear it every time. It's okay. Joey work today. Yeah, Joey's going to be like, wow, I have to edit this out every time we do this, you guys. Like... <laughs> Y'all, he already sent us a message and was like, here's the thing. I think people are confused. You should probably go back to Wednesdays. And we're like, no, we know. <laughs> we know. We think it's on Wednesdays, I'm too. confused. It's fine. <laughs> I, too, am uh, confused. Yes. Oh, in case you guys I forgot, I have a... I'm I'm Flip. Oh, I'm Ange. Hi. Yeah. Welcome. Yeah, welcome. As you can see, Ange and I have our, have our shit together this week. Y'all, I have the worst allergies in the world, and there is a storm system coming up in the Gulf, and it has all of my head, all of it, and I've just been sneezing. It's freaking terrible. Stop it. I have a cat trying to eat my... He's trying to eat my Pop-Tarts, and I really don't want him to, and I'm trying not to be real aggressive with it. If I put him out the door, he's just going to scream at the door. No. So I don't know what to do besides try and love him aggressively. It's fine. I am confusion. Uh. Yes, Cassidy, I am confusion. <laughs> oh my gosh. Hi. I am confusion. <laughs> Hi, Christy. Hi, Cassidy. Okay, Flip, so what did you do today and what are you drinking? Tell me everything. Um, Today I worked. I had a lot of meetings. The meetings never stop. I've dealt with some craziness today. The craziness never stops. Um. It is what it is. But now that I'm home and I have my wine, things are better. This is my Winking Owl Chardonnay. It cost me $2.95. Yes. We're on a roll. Yes. For I was going to say, for my Texas people in here watching, that's the wine we were talking about getting from Aldi for the trip. Because yes. it's $2 wine. It's cheap as hell. And it's delicious. So, yeah. I was explaining Aldi to them. Why Kansas is not the same as Arkansas. Please explain. America, explain. <laughs> oh my gosh, no, stop. Um, good. Well, I had today off. Good for I you. Say, I've only worked one day this week so far, and I go back to work tomorrow, but I've been working in my own house, yes. getting stuff unpacked and decorated and all that crap. Okay. Um, and so I'm drinking water because everything's just, we're, we're on a high water intake kind of day. But mm -hmm. I am eating s'mores Pop-Tarts. Which, again, are the best Pop-Tarts. They are. Yes. They truly are. Mm -hmm. And are the yeah. best Pop-Tarts when served room temperature. Cold. Yes. And also cold. They're the best cold, cold ones, raw. too. They're yeah, raw. they're the best Pop-Tarts eaten raw. <laughs> <gasps> Good lord. Okay, so hold on. Let me put these in the drawer because the cat absolutely will not stop. And I want to be able to go over the news because I'm the one covering the news today, you guys. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is only my second time doing this, and I'm not going to lie, I'm not good at it. So, bear with me. Let's do this. 
Um, I tried looking up good news to start with, and I found this thing called Squirrel News. It's a platform that gives you good news stories. So I'm waiting for one of those to load. But in the meantime, let me give you some bad news. Um, a man fell to his death while taking pictures on a cliff in Arizona. Authorities discovered other remains while they were recovering his body. Would you like to know more? First of all, I just want the entire world to know that that's like my biggest fucking fear in life. Like, you ever see like garbage bags and shit on the side of the highway and you're like, I wonder what's in that garbage bag. And then you think to yourself, like, it's probably a body. I am 100% that person. And if you don't think like that, then I'm sorry. I'm just weird. No, I do too. It's a little bit of a, what's that? How many kidnapped people do you think are in that house? Right. But then like you really think about it and like, that's totally possible. Like, oh my God, we're like, go to find a body of a man who fell to his death. And it's just like extra dead bodies. (laughs) More stuff. Okay, look, let's see. Uh, so a 25-year-old man died on Sunday after falling off a cliff at Glen Canyon National Recreation Area in Arizona. It's part of the National Park Service. Um, while authorities were recovering the man's body, they also discovered human re- remains unrelated to the victim's fatal fall, according to a press release. Um, witnesses told the National Park Service that the man identified as Orlando Serrano Arzola was taking pictures at Glen Canyon Dam overlook- on the Overlook Sunday morning. He was on top of the rim overlooking the Colorado River when he fell about 100 feet down Ugh, and then r- slid roughly 150 feet further. Jesus. Um, the victim suffered severe trauma and showed no signs of life after the fall. Okay. Um, and then they went down the dam to recover his body and those they saw more bones and said that those bones have been identified as human remains. And that they will release more information when it's available. Okay, you're welcome. John said it's like when you drive down the street wondering how many basements have people locked in them. Well, we live in Florida, so if you have a basement, it's probably only so you could lock people in it. Yeah. I'll it's also partially it's underwater, so <laughs> what the fuck? Mm, yeah. <laughs> We're at sea level. <laughs> It's just a water basement. It's just water. <laughs> it's part of your moat. If you, um, I was going to say, if you guys want a fun, fun, creepy Florida fact, um, if you ever go to St. Augustine and they tell you about the, the dead bodies, um, in Florida, we cannot bury people six feet underground because we are at sea level. Um, and in St. Augustine, the dead bodies used to just wash up out of the graves and just like float into the street <laughs> because okay. we're at sea level <laughs> no. so when you no. get a lot of rain the bodies just go Bloop. <laughs> no 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 oh that's so gross well and look i hadn't even we're now officially like florida residents and i haven't thought that through yeah <laughs> i have to go home yeah, when I'm dead. Just in I case can't. you guys are wondering what what kind of weird shit happens here in Florida, bodies float <sighs> if they're six feet underground. Good. Thanks, Flip. You're the best. You're welcome. Creepy Halloween fact. Boop. Yay. Next story. Um, a Texas grand jury indicts Netflix for alleged allegedly promoting lewd material over the film Cuties. So, Flip, do you know what Cuties is? 
I know about it. I have not watched it. Um, I haven't watched it. I don't want to watch it. I don't have an interest in anything like that. Regardless of the fact that, aside from the, the gross fact of, like, sexualizing children, I just have a really big problem with, like, like dance moms, yeah. children's dance shows, toddlers and tiaras. I think all of that shit is disgusting. Thank so I, I have no interest in watching it. <laughs> Same. Look, I, okay, so I got into... Um... A discussion is what we'll call it. A discussion. On Facebook with someone. That was a friend with someone. Um, basically, and he was he was saying that um, people can't honestly be defending this film. And I'm like, well, here's the thing. But first of all, you've never seen it. I haven't seen it. However, I know why it was made and what right. the creator is saying about it. And for some people, this would be their first time encountering this from that viewpoint and saying, oh, this is really messed up. Right. You know, thank you for educating me on this. And it would there would be some people that this is their first experience going, oh, this is pretty gross. And I didn't want to know that kids were sexualized like that. And I'm like, have you never seen a beauty pageant? Like some of these little kids that come out there in full makeup doing sexy stuff. Like this is, of course, on top of that. But anyway, a Tyler County, bless you, Tyler County, grand jury on Tuesday charged the streaming platform for, quote, promotion of lewd visual material depicting a child, accusing the film of appealing, quote, to the purest, uh, no, to the, Prurient interest in sex, P R U R I E N T. Prurient P R U R I. Prurient Prurient. I've never heard that word. Someone define that for me. Yeah. Um, and saying it has quote no literacy, artistic, political, or scientific value. Um. Which, that's fine. That is another viewpoint. But um, it's just amazing to me that a county finally went through a grand jury and did the thing against this. It's a whole thing, y'all. So, so, Netflix did denounce the assertions in the indictment. If if you have not heard about this this movie, essentially the, the writers of the movie, the producers of the movie, they are trying to say that this movie is supposed to kind of explain how children are sexualized in in the realm of like dance and things like that mm-hmm. but it i, I i've According seen to a, a netflix person what they said is that cuties is a social commentary it is against the sexualization of it young is. children. And I think it is meant to say that. Yes, it is meant to be a social commentary on that entire thing. And it is not meant in any way, shape, or form to be this like lewd visualization of children being sexual. It's just trying to give the idea that children are sexualized in dance culture, which. Like I said, not wrong. <laughs> um, I know. Marissa says that she thinks that Little Miss Sunshine did a great job with that subject matter. That is very Thank true. Thank you. I agree. That's the cutest. It's the cutest movie ever. But and he handles it right. Right, and I think that that's kind of the same kind of thing. Like they had that commentary that was handled well. Cuties takes it to I think 
now in particular mm. we take everything to an extreme so it's like yeah. nobody's gonna notice this unless we show the extreme version of this and it's french that's the other part i mean which they're a little less british than us um but it goes through and it follows this 11 year old girl as she starts to rebel against her family and the norms of being uh Sengalese muslims yep and she joins this dance crew that performs very suggestive like dance moves and they wear very revealing outfits and she's only 11 yeah. and so that's when the discussion i got into with the guy was him saying well where are we going to draw this line like where do we you know do we stop having like little girls on swim teams and like gymnastics and i'm going even when i was a child my mom would make comments about how there were pedophiles that would watch the gymnastics just to see these little girls butts bounce yep so like it doesn't you so that's when like you need to like don't watch the art if you don't want to i totally support that don't watch it if you don't want to um i don't know how i feel about the lawsuit going against it because i'm like it does exist there's like way worse shit that exists and it's not like it was made to be child pornography it's right. against it so if you miss that message because you didn't see the art but that's you know me and my mom got into that when the movie dogma came out and she was like it's anti-catholic and i go you clearly haven't seen the movie there's a giant rubber poo monster you know, and God's played by Alanis Morissette. It's not exactly anti-Catholic, and it goes into some faith-based shit, but right. mom, you never saw the movie, so how can you talk about it? So Marissa says that she remembers watching kids for the first time when she was a kid. Has anybody seen oh, that movie? Seen... I don't know I what that is. I have not seen that. I've heard it's not something I need to watch, so. I don't I don't know what that is. Um, if anybody could tell me where to find it, I'll, I'll watch it. But Ooh, It's a hard watch is what I heard. I mean, I'll watch it. I watch a lot of things, so I'll watch it. Yeah. If I'm disgusted, then it's what it is, you know. Hmm. Um, okay. Lighter story. There have been multiple sightings of a hairy, venomous caterpillar in Virginia. <laughs> so we have those here in Florida. Oh, it doesn't look like this? This is totally different. This looks like Cousin It. It's brown with like orange tips and white highlights. Oof, yeah, it's and it tough. looks kind of I don't know, like a weevil. Hold I don't on. I don't fucking like it. Marissa says it that she said it's tough and she has the DVD, so I'm going to borrow the DVD at some point. There you go. <laughs> oh god. Okay. Thank you. And aside from that, it's small, hairy, and you don't want to get anywhere near it. It's considered to be one of the most venomous caterpillars in the U.S., and there have been multiple reports of the pus caterpillar, P-U-S-S, -S, pus caterpillar, appearing, quote, in parks or near structures in eastern Virginia. The Virginia Department of Forestry is warning residents to stay away from the caterpillar because it has venomous spines across its thick, furry coat. There are little hollow hairs in that fluffy, hairy material, says Teresa Dellinger, a diagnostician at the Insect Identification Lab. That's a fun job. Mm -hmm. um, she said, it's not going to reach out and bite you, but if someone brushes up against that hair, it'll release toxins and you will have a reaction. The reactions include an itchy rash, vomiting, swollen glands, and fever. <laughs> it'll also put you in a world of pain. Uh, one resident described it feeling like a scorching hot knife. And then a Florida mother said that her teenage son began screaming when he was stung by one. So. I was going to say. Hairy venomous caterpillars for 2020? I mean, like I said, we have them in Florida. They don't look like that. They're like those 
red and black ones. If anybody's ever been to uh, mm-hmm. Stetson University in like, <gasps> actually, no, you know what? Right around this time, yeah. in in Stetson, they're fucking everywhere. Yeah. And they're like red and black and fuzzy, and they look real cute, but they're definitely venomous. Yeah, don't touch them. Don't touch them. Um, we we have them at the uh, Arts Foundation building right now. Oh, and there was one on my prop table. I hate. So them. that was, yeah. I have a broom, so I was just like, "We're done here. You're not. Nope. Don't touch my stuff." Christy called them no-no caterpillars, and John says, "Do they grow up to be poisonous?" butterflies then <laughs> wouldn't that be wild? so yeah definitely probably poisonous not not venomous but definitely poisonous because i would imagine that if something were to eat one of them it would get sick but i don't think that we would get sick from touching the butterfly so definitely probably poisonous there you go thank you <laughs> um last one that i have and it's a good news story um the Nigerian Irish teen girls won a prize for a dementia app. And let's see, it's Evelyn Namayo was the mentor for the team that created the award-winning Memory Haven app. And the team was uh, Rachel Akano, Margaret Akano, and Joy, man, I butchered this, Dway, N-J-E-K-W-E. Sorry, you guys. Um, so in an award-winning app that can help patients with dementia, it'll launch later this month in app stores. But unlike most apps made by professional software developers in the male-dominated tech industry, this one was created by three teenage girls. The Nigerian-Irish teens are the champions of the Technovation Girls, an international competition that challenges young women to develop an app that can solve a problem in their community. And the annual competition is hosted by uh, Technovation, a nonprofit organization that empowers girls to become leaders in tech. These girls were guided by their mentor and let's see. So Namayo told them about her mother who experienced dementia and that that inspired the teens who live in Drogheda, Ireland to create an app that would help with this disorder. And the 12 week challenge resulted in Memory Haven, which beat out more than 1500 submissions from 62 countries. So the app can be used by both patients and caregivers. It's six features target three problems um, for those facing dementia. So memory loss and difficulty with recognition and speech. Um, A reminder feature, for example, alerts both the patient and the caregiver that it's time for medication. There's photo albums that allow users to flip through tagged photos and identify who's in the image. Mm-hmm. And then NPR zoomed with the creators to learn about their app and the challenges they faced. And uh, spoiler alert, you're going to want to see their victory lap. This conversation's been edited. And it basically goes through and there's this whole interview with them on why they created the app, how they did it, and then they won. And I think that's pretty cool. That is cool. Good job, teenagers. <laughs> Those fucking Gen Zers. I know. They're like, let's make an app and we'll fix this. Yeah, you will. Right. Um, and other fun news. I don't know if you guys, you can look behind me. But if you look behind me. Yes. Let's, let's just count them. One, two, uh-huh. three, uh-huh. four, five. Uh-huh. Box six has arrived. <laughs> Oh, thank God. And it's going to be a doozy. 
My favorite is when she sends some comment completely out of context to anything else we've been talking about, and I have to sit there and go, that relates to Hunt a Killer. Because <laughs> jewels are worth a lot of money. A, a lot, lot, lot more money, money than we thought. Our calculator was wrong. And they're worth a whole lot of coins. I'm very excited. Um, but there was another little fun thing in the box here that I can show you guys. Where is it? Um, this will be our hint for our next box. <gasps> oh, no. What? <laughs> <laughs> that looks crazy. So some boy band. A boy band. Don't they know what canceled. happened to the boy band, but they are canceled. So that is the hint for our horrifying. next box. Um, and this one just says, hello, investigator. I hope you're ready to tackle another investigation once you close your current case. I'm not sure what to make of it yet, but I'll get back to you once I do a little digging. For now, this flyer should give you an idea of what's coming next. Michelle. And it's like a little handwritten note. <laughs> Hell yeah. That's so cool. So that will be our box after we finish this one. Um, this box in particular is probably going to be a lot longer than all of the rest of them because we're gonna be like piecing information together um i have read through some of the evidence and was big braining i've big brained a lot of information you guys big brained a lot yes good thank yes. you thank you thank you yeah and you guys we really need your help on hunt a killer night last time we, we just straight up we're sitting here and we're talking we're like why is nobody helping us? And then we look at the viewers and it's literally two. That means me and Flip are watching. And we're like, no one's here to help us. <laughs> we need to decide for these codes. Um, if you guys go back, not last Sunday, Sunday before last. Whoa. <laughs> Hold on. Sunday before last. Um, Joey and I did a little bit of a recap on things. And then for... When we do that box, I'll have everything up over here on this board. Yes. So we'll be able to piece together some stuff. Thank you. You're welcome. Yay. Good. Um, okay. Let's just, let's get on into it. So. <laughs> Tell me all of it. I'm excited. It's not, it's not the most uplifting shit coming up. Guys, get ready. Because mm. if you're new to season four, this is summer of 69. There's a lot of change happening in the world, and we got some. You got two stories for us today? Mm hmm. Okay, good. Thank you. So, we talked a lot, and uh, when we did our historical recap of 1969, about kind of the fact that our stories coming up in this season are going to be a little bit heavier. A lot of things about um, civil rights movement, things like that. So, I think we will hop in first in talking about let's start with uh bruce johnson before i can talk about bruce johnson i need to tell you guys about the young lords yes so the young you. lords formerly known as the young lords organization or the young lords party that's l-o-r-d-s mm -hmm. not the singer actual lords <laughs> I forgot about her. <laughs> um, they were a civil or they are a civil rights 
and human rights organization that was transformed by the leadership of Jose Chacha Jimenez from a Chicago turf gang on September 23rd, 1968, a hundred years after the Grito de Lers. Um, the group aims to fight for neighborhood empowerment and self-determination for Puerto Rico, Latinos, um, the colonized third world people. They use tactics such as mass education, canvassing, community programs, uh, occupations, direct confrontation, and unfortunately, they became some pretty big targets of the FBI's um, COINTELPRO program. Great. Yeah. (laughs) Basically, they are anti-capitalism, anti-fascism, anti-imperialism, anti-racism, they are Marxists slash Leninists. Um, they believe in Ru- revolutionary socialism and Puerto Rican independence. Hot damn. <laughs> go big or go home. Right. <laughs> There's not a whole lot that they don't believe in at this point. <laughs> um, the party platform points, they spell American as this. And you guys might see the spelling. Oh god, what what rapper is it? Shit. Anyway, they spell American A M E R I C A N American. They spell it A M E R I K K K A N. Cannot remember the rapper. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Cannot remember the rapper. But um Damn. Um so that's kind of to express their opposition to U.S. military presence in Puerto Rico. Uh, they suggest that America's success is deeply seated in white supremacy. <laughs> the platform follows the mission clearly, stating, We demand immediate withdrawal of U.S. military forces and bases from Puerto Rico, Vietnam, and all oppressed communities inside and outside of the U.S., No Puerto Rican should serve in the U.S. Army against his brother or sisters, for only the the true army of oppressed people is the people's army to fight all rulers. Damn. Also, is it Ice Cube? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Also, uh, Joey Badass, Mm -hmm. um, his new album is the All-American can't badass it's Mm -hmm. a title nod to ice cubes Mm -hmm. yeah which is from this great okay um i researched real quick (laughs) do we have any comments before i go on oh elaine said the boy band group name is canceled (laughs) the name is canceled which i think is so funny boy band canceled um, so the Young Lords formed in 1960 as a local Puerto Rican turf gang in Lincoln Park, Chicago, and grew to several outposts, including several women's auxiliary groups called the Young Lordettes. Holy crap. Right. While, blows my mind. while Jose Chacha Jimenez was president of the group, he reconceived the local gang officially on the 100-year anniversary Um of Grito de Lars in on September 23rd as a national civil rights and human rights movement which inspired student mo- which was inspired by student movements in Puerto Rico the Latino movements in the southwest and organizing tactics of the Black Panthers 
Yeah, and that's one of the big things we talked about in the recap of the time frame was all of these movements. It wasn't just um, black folks in America. It was all over the world and young people. It was everyone. Really hard. Yeah. yeah. Um, the Young Lords focus remains self-determination for Puerto Rico and other Latino and third world countries and for neighborhood controlled development. The movement expanded from Chicago to include a broader audience and chapters in 30 cities, including three branches in New York City, the port of entry for the majority of Puerto Rican migrants. God damn. I I mean, it's brilliant, though. And this is before the Internet, you guys. (laughs) Um, Their logo, of course, is a picture of Puerto Rico with... Uh, somebody holding a rifle it says tengo puerto rico en mi corazón i have puerto rico in my heart okay um during mayor daly's tenure in chicago puerto ricans in lincoln park and several mexican communities were evicted from their prime real estate locations near the loop lakefront old town and lakeview neighborhoods the rationale was to increase property tax revenues by luring white suburbanites and creating a suburb within the city. The urban renewal resulted in the eviction of Latino and poor families from these neighborhoods. Um, and, of course, increased police brutality and police abuse. That's what happens today. Yeah. All of it. That today is what we call gentrification, children. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, some cute little trendy shops in your downtown area. Yeah, gent- used to be homes for people. Yeah, gentrification, you guys. Thanks. Welcome to my TED talk. <laughs> <I know right. laughs> um, some young lords were involved in the Puerto Rican June nineteen sixty or yeah nineteen sixty six Division Street riots in Wicker Park and Humboldt Park, the nineteen sixty eight Democratic Convention protests in Grand Park, Grant Park, and the adjacent Lincoln Park neighborhood which resulted in the young lords under the leadership of Jose Chacha Jimenez to join with other groups to form a broader civil and human rights movement. Basically, the displacement of Puerto Ricans and poor residents became their primary organizing focus, and the young lords organization began to train students and youth to take leadership to organize the Latino community on a national level. Wow. Multiple chapters formed nationwide based on the Chicago chapter and several branches in New York City and just along the East Coast in general. The national headquarters in Chicago asked the loose coalition of chapters in New York to unite as a single regional branch. All chapters considered neighborhood empowerment and Puerto Rican self-determination as their unifying missions. The national headquarters supported the unification and mission as New York served as the port of entry for all Puerto Ricans entering the United States. Then we see more of these chapters popping up um, in the Midwest and Florida and just along the East Coast, which caused because of the Great Migration in the 1940s. Um, so you do see a lot of chapters opening up in those areas as well. Um, the office in Chicago attempted to construct a nationwide grassroots movement within the U.S. to unite Puerto Ricans and other Latinos to carry out its mission. The New York office chapter um, 
formed 10 months after the chapter in Chicago. Um, and they had basically gained national prominence because they were hosting all of these protests against the conditions faced by Puerto Ricans in the United States. Yeah. Because most of the members in New York were students with middle income and they were all media savvy, the New York chapter mm. flourished and provided needed support for the national headquarters that was then under surveillance by the FBI. Holy shit. Also, once again, young people, good job. <laughs> Jesus. Um, media savvy. Here right? Media savvy. The national headquarters' first action was to ransack and close the Department of Urban Renewal in Chicago. The young lords attended the urban renewal meeting and told the panel of local neighborhood association that no more meetings would be permitted in Lincoln Park until people of color were on the urban renewal board. <laughs> right? Hot damn. No, you can't come into our community and do this without our yep, consent. Without come us. On. Yep. Let's. We want to be part of this. On July 27th, 1969, the chapter office in New York City mounted a garbage offensive to commemorate the 1968 uh, sanitation strike and to protest substandard garbage collection services in East Harlem. The wow. event also promoted the opening of the Young Lords New York City office. The offensives targeted local city services that is aligned with National Headquarters' mission of neighborhood empowerment. In Chicago, the Young Lords also occupied local institutions in Lincoln Park neighborhood to support low-income housing for working families. New the, York. Like, the closest thing I can think of recently that's happened like that, because I'm just also not as involved over the last few years as I have been this year, but um, was all the kids after the shooting at the school in Florida. Yeah. And all those kids that came together mm -hmm. and were talking and having meetings and going to these city council meetings and shit and saying, what the hell? Like, we should be able to go to school and not be afraid of getting killed. Right. You know? Ugh. Um, The New York members actually first read about the Chicago Young Lords in an issue of the Black Panther newspaper that supported actions by the Puerto Rican and Latino communities for self-determination and publicize the increasing repression of the Chicago National Headquarters. Wow. Okay. The New York office followed the actions of the People's Church in Chicago and took over the first Spanish United Methodist Church in East Harlem. Over a hundred members were then arrested in the two-week takeover. National headquarters members encouraged New York members not to resist arrest and to avoid bloodshed. Okay. The New York church occupation took place after the sit-in at Chicago's Grant Hospital, the takeover of the People's Park, the occupation of the McCormick Seminary, the occupation of the Chicago's People's Church, and in several cities, the Young Lords set up free community programs. United Methodist Pastor Reverend Bruce Johnson, mm -hmm. who is our first unfortunate victim of the night, yes. um, he was of the Northside Cooperative Ministry, and he worked to obtain funds to support the Young Lords programs. The assistant pastor of the Young, York, Young Lords People's Church in Chicago, Reverend Sergio Herrera, did not initially agree with the Young Lords Church occupation, nor the... the um, what, what am I trying to say here? 
the murals initially no no and and the murals of of che uh rivera and don pedro all that were all over the neighborhoods (laughs) (laughs) um but in conjunction with the may 1969 army armitage avenue united methodist church occupation the young lords immediately set up programs inside the people's church the building renamed a uh, church, but also the Young Lords National Headquarters for two years. Um, wow. The church pastor and his wife, unfortunately, and this is where we get into Reverend Bruce Johnson. Um, as we said, he served as an aide t- and uh, solidar- and served in solidarity with the Young Lords. Ooh during their occupation of the McCormick Theological Seminary in May of 1969. Um, When he was pastor, they approached him about setting up a daycare center at the church. He was extremely receptive to the idea, but unfortunately the congregation was not that receptive to um, setting up daycares and day camps for these young Latinos. Um, This led to a four-day sit-in that began on June 11th of 1969 when the Young Lords occupied the church. Mm. Lincoln Park residents asked the city to inspect the church to determine if the site was in compliance with state regulations in hopes of kind of just quashing the whole daycare thing. And the inspection found 11 violations that cost an estimated $10,000 to correct. The young lords then raised the funds and two and a half <laughs> right they raised the funds <laughs> they raised the money to get the things fixed so that they can have fix their daycare things there. so they could have their daycare um two oh two months later the daycare was built wow in the basement of the church um a medical wow. facility and a breakfast program for poor children were also added wow um johnson supported the takeover of the of the church with the which the young lords eventually renamed the people's church now i've heard of this somebody is called... that i've heard of yes the everything people's else church. i'm like this is all news to me yes. but that i've heard of the people's church. so bruce johnson um he was born in illinois in 1938 um he met his wife eugenia while they both attended the garrett evangelical theology seminary in evanston illinois um, they married in 62 and had three sons, Brian, Kevin, and Perry, and he became an ordained Methodist minister in 64. Unfortunately, on September 29th, 1969, he and his wife were found stabbed to death in their apartment. Mm. Um, a lot of people believe that he and his wife were killed because of their support for the young yeah. lords. Well, because why else are they secretly drug dealers or their kids a menace? Like, that seems like the main thing that people are having a problem with. Because, like you said in the beginning, the leadership was okay with them using the church. It was some of the, uh, they're not called patrons, but the mm-hmm. attendees of the church were not happy about mm-hmm. it. Um, and the newspaper article that discussed his death, the headline is couple found stabbed in their home. 
This minister aided street gangs. Why you gotta word it like that? And it is. It's all in the wording and everything. Right. And everybody said that he was a great, he was a wonderful guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, The word and his wife, him and his wife. Yes. Oh. Um, I just. I think it's absolutely awful that they just labeled them as a street gang and didn't think of all the positive things that they did. And yes, they were a street gang originally. Yes, and they did. <laughs> and they did forcefully take over a church. Yes, but they, they, did, they, they were a street crime. gang. But like, not street gang in the sense of street gangs that we think of. <laughs> well, um, <out> of context. <laughs> but yeah, so his, his death is... Well, his murder is still unsolved. Um, yeah. And yeah, that's... Like cameras around. Right. And they really don't talk too much about his death. Not a lot of stuff is released about his death. Mm. Um, just the fact that they were stabbed multiple times. But the young lords consider him to be a, a martyr for their cause. Um as a matter of fact, this article here from October 3rd of last year, uh, oh, wow. they filled a church, the Holy Covenant United Methodist Church. They filled on September 29th to commemorate Bruce Johnson and his wife, Eugenia. Um, they were remembered for supporting the young lords and their role in the struggle against poverty, war, and oppression. They were savagely murdered in their own home, and that was 50 years ago. So we were... We just hit the 51st anniversary of this. Um, They were stabbed to death during a U.S. government campaign of repression. So at this point, the FBI is hitting hard against the young lords. Um, Again, as I said, they're calling it a time of repression because they were a target of the FBI's coin to pro, whatever it is program and they that program specifically targeted puerto rican independence groups wow um this also led to the new york chicago schism of that group which mirrored other divisions and other new leftist groups including like the black panther party the students for democratic society and the brown berets I don't think black the Black Panther Party is probably the only one that we're going to touch on. Actually, I think we yeah. do touch on Students for a Democratic Society. Yes, we do. Yeah, I was going to say I think we do touch yeah. on them. But I think the Brown Berets might be the only ones we don't touch on. I think you're right. Um, but basically, yeah. the reason why this schism even happened is because of the FBI's investigation. Um, because FBI informants and police informants were able to infiltrate these groups and cause these major separations in their ideals yeah um the young lord's leaders were still happens today yeah (laughs) yeah all right so now we just call them narcs (laughs) yeah (laughs) we don't we don't call you police informants and provocateurs you are narcs (laughs) you're a narc Um, The Young Lords leaders were framed and discredited by both Major uh, Richard J. Daly, 
forces and the FBI, the entire Chicago leadership of the Young Lords was forced to undergo and to was forced underground to reorganize and avoid complete destruction. Um, the tactics used against the movement included rumor campaigns, pitting groups against them to create faction fractionalism, factionalism, goodness, distrust <laughs> and personality conflicts. And in Chicago, the Quintel Pro created the anti-rainbow coalition component the Red Squad also monitored the Young Lord's National Headquarters 24 hours a day. Um, Jimenez became a main police target and was indicted 18 times in a six-week period on felony charges, including assault and battery on police officers and creating and inciting mobs. Jesus. Um, the intent of the police was to cripple the organization. And while the Young Lords advocated armed strategies similar to those advocated by the Black Panthers, the basis was as a right to self-defense. So only if they were attacked were they able to fight back. Fight back. Yeah. Um, such self-defense was advocated after the shooting of Manuel Ramos, the suspected police involvement in the death of Jose Pancho Lind, the alleged suicide of, Jul of Julio uh, Roldan while in custody of the, uh, of the New York Police Department, and the fatal stabbings in Chicago of Bruce Johnson and his wife Eugenia, and the murder of assistant pastor Sergio Herrera shortly after his transfer to Los Angeles. Damn. Yeah. <sighs> the Young Lords accused the FBI, Cointel Pro, of a conspiracy to murder Young Lords and Black Panthers. Mm. I mean, I'm not saying that you're, like, wrong. Yeah. And I'm not not saying that the FBI That's was involved. I'm just I mean, saying it, yeah. that I can't say definitively that the FBI was involved. There you go. Also, bring back the name Eugenia. That's a great name. <laughs> just, if anybody, it, you know what? <laughs> I'm telling you right now that the CIA is listening in on me and Ange, and they're like, those two girls there. <laughs> you gotta watch out for them. They Watch might, they might incite a riot. Thank I you. Would, That's exactly what I was gonna say. And inciting I, riots. And I will say that I would never. No. Never. Never. <laughs> Come see our show. Riot time. Right. <laughs> All of a sudden, Ange and I go on tour, and we're like, "Hey guys, come on, we're going on tour. We're going on tour to." <laughs> yeah. To we're having a flash mob. To support and advocate for the poor and oppressed communities. <laughs> Bring your signs and your Molotov cocktails. Let's go. No, no, not that part. Shh, never. Bring your wine bottles for you Thank to drink you. the wine. With your handkerchief and your lighter. Well, yeah, sometimes you need a handkerchief because it gets hot outside. You gotta pat yeah. yourself down. It's, like that cigarette. It's yeah. still hot here in Florida. Jesus. <laughs> Y'all don't ever move houses in Florida in September and October. It's the most exhausting, hottest thing you'll ever do. Fucking the worst part oh, is... Do outdoor shows. Don't do outdoor shows. The worst part is is that it's not even like 
hot, hot in September and October. It's like just nasty, sticky hot. Like the temperature is not like August and like July when we're like 100 degrees. The temperatures are like 83 and moist. (laughs) She said the M word. (laughs) Sorry, friends. (laughs) You step outside and just start sweating from standing. Um, so the young lords worked in their communities to provide resources similar to the actions of the Brown Berets and the Black Panther parties. The goal was to raise awareness of the oppression and educate on the history and struggle of Puerto Ricans. The young lords, a reader from 2010, edited by Daryl Wasner, details the purpose, goals, and tactics of the Young Lords New York chapter. He wrote, Puerto Ricans have suffered as a group racially and culturally, not as individuals. So interesting. Uh I I like that statement there. That Puerto Ricans have suffered racially and culturally as a group, not as individuals. Hmm. I wonder where else statements like that could be used. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're just going to laugh about it real quick. John also said, also don't try moving a massive couch up three flights of stairs. Is that your couch? (laughs) Casual slurping. And then Kim Crane says moist is a good word. (laughs) Um... Therefore, the fight for self-determination must be a group struggle. Hmm. Okay. I really like that statement, and I think that we should use statements like that more often. Mm-hmm. We struggle as a group, not as an individual. Therefore, yep. we must fight as a group, not as individuals. Yep. Uh, Wasner's book details that every Puerto Rican has suffered and felt the pain of their fellow Puerto Rican brothers, sisters, friends and relatives his book argues that puerto ricans must fight for their nation against american colonism by organizing and educating in the barrios and raising awareness of the repression since the creation of young lords as a movement in the lincoln park neighborhood Hmm. now in 73 at this point the young lords are completely in disarray Many of the members have now set up underground training schools in Wisconsin. Some members continue independent efforts around self-determination for Puerto Rico. In Chicago, Young Lords resurfaced. And in New York, the Young Lords and other chapters have always continued to function. Mm-hmm. After Jimenez served several years in prison, he ran for alderman of the 76th Ward against Mayor Daly's machine candidate. He garnered 39% of the vote against the Democratic candidate, Chris Cohen. Um, and his election re-energized the symbolic rainbow coalition that was formed by the Black Panthers, Young Patriots, Young Lords, and other groups. There you go. Um, in 83, the Young Lords organized the first major Latino event for the successful campaign of Chicago's first African-American mayor, Harold Washington. After Washington's victory, Jimenez introduced the mayor to a crowd of 100,000 Puerto Ricans in Humboldt Park in June of 83, where the Young Lords distributed 
30,000 buttons inscribed with Tengo Puerto Rico in mi corazón. In the fall of 1995, Jimenez brought together Chicago Young Lords, Tony Baez, Carlos Flores, Angel de Rivero, Omar Lopez, Angie Lind to form the Lincoln Park Project to collect the history of the Young Lords movement. They curated the history and documented the displaced Latinos of the Lincoln Park neighborhood in support of Puerto Rican uh, campers, the struggle for Puerto Rican independence and against the displacement of Puerto Ricans in, uh, I've never seen it written like that, but in the diaspora, the Young Lords organized the Lincoln Park Camp near Grand Rapids, Michigan in September 23rd of 2002. Mm-hmm. The Young Lords supported freed Puerto Rican nationalist leaders and urban guerrilla groups. Other Young Lords joined um, Maoist formations such as the Puerto Rican Revolutionary Workers Party or other or provided the leadership of the National Congress of Puerto Rico Rights, Puerto Rican Rights, I'm sorry. Some young lords worked in the media, such as Juan Gonzalez of the New York Daily Times and Democracy Now!, uh, Pablo Guzman at WCBS-TV New York, and Felipe Luciano and Miguel Mickey Melendez of WBAI-FM in New York. Wow. I, I gotta say, you guys... That's some cool shit. <laughs> I know, right? Well, that stuff is like, okay, you mentioned it. And you're like, we're going to put this in the show. And I'm going, I, I've never heard of any of this. So this is all news to me. And I'm like, this is kind of cool. I I think mm-hmm. very, very cool stuff that they covered there. And I also think it's great yeah. that they continue to remember um, Bruce Johnson as their ally. And like yeah. Bruce Johnson is not like... He's just some, like, if you look at a picture of him, he's just, he looks like your average white dude. <laughs> he's just like. He's just the dude that ran a church with his wife. He's just an average white dude who runs a church with his wife. Mm-hmm. He really And did. his gang came in and was like, we want to start doing stuff. He's like, well, okay. He's like, you know what? The Bible That's says to help those less fortunate than you. Does it? It does. It doesn't, yeah. you know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say help those less fortunate than you unless they are of a different race than you. Oh, thank it you. It doesn't, I had to specify that. Thank you. Thank you. I think that message gets confused a lot lately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what the Bible doesn't say. Mm. Love thy neighbor. Not love thy neighbor unless they're gay. Love or thy trans. Yeah, love thy neighbor poor. unless they're poor gay trans mm-hmm. and of a different race. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's if you if you love look sometimes in the in when you look in the Bible, it's got the little like really tiny numbers next to it and it's got the little mm-hmm. footnotes down at the bottom. That's what it says in the footnotes. Unless <laughs> Stop it, you Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> That's me when people are like, You're Catholic, you haven't read the Bible. I'm like, Oh please. I even know what the footnotes say. <laughs> Been around. We do Bible study too. Chill. All right. So. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. I guess we should talk about Edwin T. Pratt next. Okay. Hold on. But before you get to that, real quick, you guys, if you want to follow us on any of our social media, it's all down here. 
Am I pointing the right way? Yes, I am. Yes, you are. It's all down here below the flip. You can get us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, we're on YouTube. We're on Twitch. Twitch? Twitch? What are we? What? Twitch. We are not on Twitch! <laughs> Is that a thing? Is that name something bad? Twat? Yeah, no. What? <laughs> we're on Twat. Yeah, that one. <laughs> Can follow us on Twat. Um, so we're all on there. Please follow us and then if you could take a moment and go to your favorite podcatcher where you listen to podcasts instead of watching us um subscribe like leave a review send your friends over have them like subscribe leave a review that would be wonderful and we'll keep bringing you guys more info and last thing please 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 check out our patreon mm -hmm. because we need we, we do put a lot of time research and then joey does a whole lot of the hard work to get this out here so we'd like to you know pay him something at least give him like wine money, coffee money. Yes, wine money, money, coffee money, pizza money. Anything yes, that you, any tips that you give us will, of course, go towards upkeep of all of our lovely items here and wine. Oh my God. Yes, and wine. But yeah, and that's mostly go, go to Patreon to do that. Leave us a tip. That would be great. You get little bonuses if you sign up on Patreon to do recurring gifts. Yes. Thank you. All right. But Next story. All right. So Edwin T. Pratt. Where mm. uh, where to begin? Where to begin? So for those Bring of you. Bring back the name Edwin. And Eugenia. Eugenia and Edwin. <laughs> so Edwin T. Pratt was an American activist during the civil rights movement. He was also the executive director of the Seattle Urban League. I told you guys that I was going to go there today. <laughs> you did. You went right there. Thank you. Jesus. I told so you I was going to go to there. Seattle. We're going to Seattle. Well, we went from Chicago to New York to Seattle. Thank you. Seattle. Yep. Now, the National Urban League, um, or, you know, the Seattle Urban League. Um, sorry, where did it just go? Sorry. Um, the National Urban League, of which he was the leader for the Seattle chapter, was formerly known as the National League on Urban Conditions Among African Americans. It was a nonpartisan historic civil rights organization that was originally based in New York City that advocated on behalf of economic and social justice for African Americans and against racial discrimination in the United States. It is the oldest and the largest community-based organization of its kind in the nation. Holy crap. Should have learned about this in school at some point, yeah? I was going to say, if you haven't learned about this... No. That's weird. I did... I know. I, I, I am a history buff. If you guys know me, my teaching certificate is in history. U.S. history is my thing. So I did learn about this in high school. I had a very awesome yeah. American history teacher. <laughs> but mm. um, let me just start this by saying the Committee on Urban Conditions Among Negroes, because that's what it was originally known as, <laughs> um, was founded in New York City on September 29th. September 29th is... I was going to say, it wasn't the last one 28th? Yeah, too? Yeah. It's the time frame. <laughs> um, was formed on September 29th, 1910, 
by Ruth Standish Baldwin and George Edmund Haynes, among others. It merged mm-hmm. with the Committee for the Improvement of Industrial Conditions Among Negroes in New York, which was founded okay. in 1906. There you go. Put those two together. Now yes. You get... mm-hmm. Okay. The National League for the and the National League for the Protection of Colored Women, which was founded founded in 1905. It Whoa. was renamed the National League on Urban Conditions Among Negroes. Okay. And Haynes served as the organization's first executive director. Um, currently, the National Urban League has 90 affiliates that are serving 300 communities in 36 states and the District of Columbia. The National mm-hmm. Urban League, which is probably what you guys have heard it referred to yes. the most, National Urban League. Yeah, and didn't know where it came from yes. or what it, but look, um, I used to volunteer with a group, the NCCJ in South okay. Texas, and it used to be the National Conference of Christians and Jews, and then it turned into the National Conference of Community Justice, I think is what it turned into. So it just listening to the names going and knowing where it came from is pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um. Mm-hmm. So the National Urban League provides direct services in the areas of education, healthcare, housing, jobs, and justice, improving the lives of more than 2 million people nationwide. The organization mm. also has a Washington bureau that serves as its research, policy, and advocacy arm on issues relating to Congress and administration. The National Urban League is an organizational member of the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence, which advocates for gun control. In 1989, it was the beneficiary of all proceeds from the Stop the Violence movement and their hip-hop single, Self-Destruction. I remember that. (laughs) In, In May of 2017, the National Urban League produced... Uh, State of Black America TV Town Hall, which aired on TV One in uh, 2017 and 2018. The TV Town Hall elevated social issues related to African Americans through interview-style format with celebrity guests and was executively produced by Rhonda Spears Bell. I don't know if you guys remember that. That is the the one that this kind of, that kind of programming a few years back... They had this big thing with like T.I. and other rappers and the use of the N-word in their songs. That is where this sparked from. Um, And then in February 2018, the National Urban League launched a weekly podcast named For the Movement, which discusses Mm -hmm. persistent policy, social and civil rights issues that are continuously affecting communities of color. I wonder what it sounds like right about now. <laughs> I, might, I might have to go listen to it. You have to go check that out. <laughs> um, so Edwin T. Pratt, he was the president of, or he was the executive director of the Seattle Urban League. Um, he was born in Miami. Look at us Florida peoples. He was born in Miami. He received his bachelor's degree from Clark College in Atlanta and his master's degree in social work from Atlanta University. He worked for the Urban League in Cleveland, Ohio and Kansas City, Missouri before he arrived in Seattle in 1956 to be the Seattle League's community relations secretary. 
1961, he became the executive director of the Seattle Urban League. And among his achievements was the triad plan for the desegregation of the Seattle public schools. He also led the initiative for equal housing opportunities. Hot damn. So. Um. I, I kind of, I love and I hate yeah. the articles about his life history. Um, Edwin Pratt was assassinated in 1969, right on his front doorstep. Hmm. January 26, 1969, he was assassinated. He had been the civil rights executive director for a decade. Um, he was born in a tight-knit community of Bahamian immigrants in Coconut Grove. Um, that is where, if you guys have been to Miami, that's where UM is. Coconut Grove is right where the UM campus is. Um, his parents raised five children. His father was a construction laborer. His mom was a housekeeper and a laundress in the hotel industry. Uh, he went to George Washington Carver High School um but because of segregation and racial violence in florida at the time his siblings all migrated to northern cities but he stayed in atlanta mm. um he was of course introduced to the national urban league while he was earning his master's degree um and he joined in 55 after getting his master's degree he married Betty Jean Williams, who was a native of Texas, who he met in graduate school. They, yeah, they came to Seattle when he was assigned to work as the community relations secretary. And Betty took a job as a supervisor of social workers at Neighborhood House, which was a center that provided assistance to residents of Seattle's central area since 1906. Wow. Um, again, four years later, he becomes the executive director of the Urban League, and he oversaw the rapid growth of the Seattle Urban League in the 60s, and the league staff multiplied from four to 27 individuals during his tenure. Um, from four? From four wow. to 27. As a director, he basically became the key participant in civil rights campaigns against housing discrimination, school segregation, employment biases, and police brutality. In fact, his family integrated the previously all-white Seattle suburb of Shoreline in 1959. He and his family were the first African-American family to move into the suburbs in Seattle. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. That's wild. <laughs> wild. And he's from Miami. And from Miami. From Texas, and, they <laughs> yeah. and they were like, you know what? <laughs> we're going to do it. Let's do it. <laughs> We'll kick this off. Good. Thanks. Um, partially, they did this partially to bring attention to residential segregation in the metropolitan area. When Congress passed the 1964 Equal Opportunity Act, um, which initiated the war on poverty, the Seattle Urban League was one of the first agencies in the nation to be awarded the Office of Economic Opportunity Funds to administer the Central Area Motivation Program, also known as the CAMP. Uh. Pratt was a founding member of the Central Area Civil Rights Committee, 
which was formed by the leaders of the NAACP, CORE, and other groups to provide strategic coordination of civil rights movements in Seattle. And like his mentor at the National Urban League, Whitney Young, Pratt was a negotiator for CACRC with Seattle's political and corporate leaders. Also, real quick, hi, Joey. Oh, hello, Joseph. (laughs) He's just waving. I'm glad you shared. (laughs) We're glad you're alive. We wish you were here. Yes. He's going to get blown away by a hurricane soon. Good Lord. (laughs) (laughs) um edwin pratt one of his his most famous um quotes that he would say on the battlefield of the civil rights he said you have to learn how to duck wow supporters think you don't do enough opponents say you've gone too far it's life in a crossfire and the coolly opposing imposing director of the urban league of metropolitan seattle that's that's his thing and he lived in this predominantly white city mostly and he was the most influential and outspoken black leader in the city he had a wonderful sense of humor and he was admired for his ability to find the high middle ground wow um Um, real quick joey joey says keep my government name out of here joseph (laughs) (laughs) joseph (laughs) um by the end of the decade which was now a year after the assassination of martin luther king pratt that's really when he began to push hard for desegregation in workplaces and the de-ghettoizing of white of neighborhoods wow that's what they called it, the de-ghettoizing. De-ghettoizing. We just want to have a normal-ass neighborhood. Yes. Wow. And, and an end to police harassment. He attracted wide biracial <laughs> support among moderates, but he'd also united the races in another campaign. Dissenters, black and white, seemed to be lining up to kill him. Jeez. They sent him angry letters. They left him intimidating messages. They got up at public meetings to threaten his life. Mm-hmm. Um, Pratt's white secretary, who took his messages, thought some of her boss's fellow African-Americans were the most resentful. They were the most militant and often sometimes the most publicly vowed to eliminate him. Fuck. His good work That's became terrible. less important and he began to worry more about his demise, his secretary would tell the investigators. Wow. It didn't help that he was also having an affair with his secretary. Fuck! <laughs> no, well, thank you for sharing the truth and not trying to, like, gloss over and make him sound like a saint. No, it didn't Jesus. help that he was also having an affair with his secretary, who was also, who, who was white. Did I say that part? Who was white? The, the sweet little white one that was taking messages. <laughs> that was taking his death oh. threats. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh. She, of course, asked not to be named in any of the articles <laughs> for her own safety. Um, he had recently gotten up the nerve to ask his wife of 13 years for a divorce. Um, Betty, his wife, was an... Who was... Let me phrase this the appropriate way. 
Oh no. She was a dry alcoholic, which because in in the sense of oh. of alcoholism, you were always an alcoholic. You were just yeah. either dry or yeah. So she was a dry alcoholic. Um, she began hey, drink. No. Yeah, she began drinking again after he'd asked for the divorce, and she threatened to kill him. Yeah, that well, alcohol do that to So oh, now he's getting death threats at work, and his wife that he would like no. to divorce is now threatening to kill him. Um, he. I mean, they are under a tremendous amount of stress. The yes. whole group. Yes. This is not normal. Um, his secretary slash girlfriend, um, said that he was worn down by conflict at work and at home, and he wanted to take a job somewhere else, possibly overseas, possibly with Boeing, like the oh. plane. Yeah. 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 Um, and. She, his secretary slash girlfriend said that he vowed to marry her and move somewhere out of the shouting, if not shooting, distance. Oh, good lord. He was supposed to meet his girlfriend for dinner at her apartment on the night of January 26, 1969, but there had been a rare heavy Seattle snow that Sunday, and he called her around 8 p.m. to say that he would see her the next day. Pratt settled in for the night, sitting in his favorite chair, clipping race-related stories from the newspapers, as he often did while watching television. Betty was in the bedroom, putting their five-year-old daughter, Miriam, down for the night. She and Ed... Right. Um, This is not going to be good. It's so sad, because, like, Betty was a social worker... And she was an alcohol abuse counselor. But also was now suffering again from alcoholism. Yeah, I would say she's also a human being. Yes. Um, But she said that she always supported him and she always worried about him. She had been anxious because she'd received a threatening phone call after the Mississippi civil rights leader Medgar Ev. Evers was assassinated yeah. in his driveway by the KKK. Um, and the female caller said, if Ed doesn't shut up, he'll end up like Medgar. Man, poor Medgar. That's a whole other really sad story. Um, an hour passed when Ed heard snowballs hitting the sides of his shoreline rambler on First Avenue Northeast. The Richmond Highlands neighborhood was white, was as white as the outdoors that evening. Mm. Pratt in his slippers padded to the front door and poked his head out into the cold night seeing figures under his driveway's carport he said who's there a shotgun suddenly exploded the slug tearing through his mouth and lodging in his neck after glancing off the bone and severing his spine oh my god He crumpled to the floor as Betty, who'd been looking out in the bedroom window, saw the red muzzle flash and shouted, they've got a rifle, but by then he was already dead. Oh. Oh. Um, The two figures disappeared into the night, and neighbors who heard the shot saw two young men hop into what some guessed was a 68 Buick Skylark that was driven by a third man. 
They looked like kids, said a witness. It was the way they ran. Mm. No one got a good look at the mm. suspects. Some thought they were white. Other people thought they were black. But in his death, mm. he received undivided attention from the city and the police, suddenly dealing with a Southern-style racial assassination. Words of praise and grief flowed from local and national leaders, including President Nixon, who wrote Betty Pratt a note of um, condolence. The rarity of the murder of a black leader in a northern white community moved Nixon to dub Pratt the MLK of the Northwest. Damn. Pratt's funeral at St. Mark's Cathedral on Capitol Hill, his friend and St. Mark's Dean, the very Reverend John C. Leffler, recalled Pratt's ghetto childhood and wondered if he had a subconscious knowledge that he had to pack a lot of work into a short amount of time. Whitney Young, National Urban League director, said, I sense some shame that this could have ha that this could happen here. They, the killers, probably came from this exact environment. Mm. City Council and federal investigators poured over scant evidence, the 12-gauge shotgun slug that was taken from his body, the tire tracks, the footprints in the snow, and over the next few months, they would question hundreds of witnesses and suspects. Aides to FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover and U.S. Attorney General John Mitchell were involved on a daily basis, in part secretly hoping to keep a lid on racial tensions. In a teletype message sent to Hoover and relayed to the Seattle FBI office two days after the shooting, Mitchell wrote, It's come to my attention that certain black groups are circulating a story to the effect that the death of Pratt was caused by white racists. Does your bureau have any information to the contrary? And if so, is there any way that we can publicize it through local police or otherwise? Those are the words you shouldn't write like that anywhere. Hi, can you help us with covering this up? Like, even if you just have an idea, can we circulate another idea? Just because this is looking real bad. Thanks for mm -hmm. your help. <laughs> Jesus. <sighs> Y'all, it's not new. Everything that's happening no, now is not it's new. No, it's not, and it's just, new. it's so sad that that's the thought that they had. Like... Hey, is there any way that we could okay. say that black people were, were the ones who did this? Yeah. I just, you know. Yeah. Any kind of proof? Any thoughts? Anything. Maybe there was... Come on. Um, King County's plain-spoken plain sheriff, Jack Porter, replied by saying that most what most people were thinking. I can see no motivation for the killings other than politics or race. Hmm. Forensically, he added that all it took was a coward's close-up shot. This wouldn't require a great deal of professionalism. Yeah, it wasn't a hitman. It wasn't anything like this. Anybody could have done it. Right. The investigation went nowhere despite a $10,000 reward, and no one was ever arrested or charged with the crime. Still, Porter's department, the lead agency in the case, continues to probe Edwin T. Pratt's death today, this article was written, I don't see a date on it, but it was 42 years after his death. So, what okay. is that, 20, 2012? Yeah. 
yeah, 2012-ish. In my head, I'm like, a couple of years ago. No, that was a long time. 2012. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it officially remains unsolved, but bound in six weighty case, file, case files stored in the cold case library at the Regional Justice, Justice Center in Kent. The case went cold for 25 years and suddenly jumped back to life in 1995 when a Seattle Post intelligencer broke new ground, quoting witnesses who said it was two white men who committed the crime and bragged about it. The shooter, uh-huh. right. The shooter, uh-huh. Tommy Kirk, 21, was a violent street thug, and his accomplice at the Pratt home, Texas Barton Gray, 49, who was an armed drug dealer. The third person. The boy's name was Texas? Texas Barton Gray. What a name. What a name. The okay, third person, unnamed, drove the getaway car. Furthermore, someone likely paid for the hit. But who and what were the motive? Apparently now there are some answers to it. The case appears to have reached its end and, in the view of some, may actually be solved. King County Sheriff oh. Sue Rar recently allowed Seattle Weekly access to previously dis- undisclosed information, which the paper had been seeking through public records requests for five years. Based on documents and interviews with cold case detectives and two witnesses who were with the three hitmen team after the murder, Seattle Weekly confirmed that Kirk, a descri- described as a, soci- uh, sorry, a psychopath, trigger-happy drug dealer, fired the shot that killed Pratt. Gray, a longtime drug dealer and gun peddler, was his lookout in the carport that night. Detectives and witnesses have now identified the third man as Michael Lee Jordan, then 22, a small-time criminal who drove the getaway car. All were white. All are dead. And they may have been paid as much as $25,000 to do so. Of course. Oh, I just can't. Okay, in the words of John, our listener, kind of weird how evidence for things like this usually only appear many years later. Oops, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Can we start over? I lost it. Yeah. Yeah. So That's, you mean to tell mm-hmm. me that there have been these four huge case files sitting there on this case for 25 years? It, look, and they made because in, in to ni- access to it for five cause, years. Because in 1995 is when uh-huh. this witness came forward and said it was these three people. Uh-huh. Then you mean to tell me in 2012... Mm-hmm. is when they got yeah. access to this information. So uh-huh. y'all have known this. Yeah. I was, yeah. I was what, 18? So y'all knew that for 17 years. Man, Flip, you should really listen to the podcast called Up and Vanished. You will get heated because it's the same shit. It's not, no matter what town you're in, it's town, city, whatever. It's always a small town. Someone knows something. And when it's shit like this, people can't help but talk and brag about what they did. And so, of course, these guys brag to somebody that they're the ones that shot this guy. No one's going to sit there and sit on it and not say anything. And then it finally, it eats away at whoever they told or it finally eats away at their family members and they finally come forward. Clear. I just, mm, I, mm. The other one is there's another podcast called Someone Knows Something. Same thing. Because someone always knows something. Right. You just need you to keep putting out that information and bothering people until someone are telling me that for 17 years they yeah. refused to release this information to the public. 
We gotta wait till this man has children. This man has grandchildren. For all we know, he could very well have great grandchildren. Uh-huh. I know. Cold case detectives also think a rabble-rousing black contractor named Henry Rooney, who can be circumstantially connected to Tommy Kirk through a supposed association with the Black Panthers, is most likely the man who paid for the shooting. Mm. He was questioned only days after Pratt's death, and according to the confidential records, he was considered a top suspect. Even by the FBI investigators. Look, look, it's what Marissa's saying. Look, the evidence can never come out until after the hitman is dead, or it'll lead all the way back to the higher-ups, because it goes all the way to the top. Yep. There's always something somewhere. And you gotta cover up. Oh, fuck, they were bragging about it. This is shitty. Oh, well, let's just keep covering that up so that we don't get dragged into this. Like, uh. are you kidding? Mm-hmm. No one had a greater motive, says County Detective Scott Tompkins, who had been working the case for five years. When you look at the evidence, it's very compelling. But it's no slam dunk. Rooney, who died 15 years ago. When when did I say this article was published? In, in 2012? 20, what, what year was this? Let me that just right. let me just pull this right back up here. Yeah, double check that. Uh, twenty eleven. I'm sorry. Twenty eleven. Okay. Twenty eleven. I was so in 1996 is when this uh-huh. man died. Uh huh. I'm sorry. Are you absolutely joking? Right. So Rooney died 15 years ago. So that would be like I said, 1996. He denied any role in the slayings record show and his former attorney says Rooney is wrongly accused. There's an alternate version of the story as well. It comes from Jordan's former wife, the getaway driver, Daniela Jordan, who says she was with her husband, Kirk and Gray, just hours before Pratt's shooting. In her first interview, Jordan tells Seattle Weekly that she thinks detectives have solved the case, but don't know it. There's no shadowy behind-the-scenes figure, she claims. Kirk was a wild man and a racist who had vowed to kill... I just... I I can't... I mean, I could Uh -uh. say it, but I can't say it. Anyway, her... Yeah. Um, There's no shadowy... Yeah, there's no shadowy behind-the-scenes figure. So there was nobody who paid them to kill this man. She claims no, that just he just did it. did it. Yeah. Um, there was wow. no shadowy wow. behind the scenes figure. Kirk was a wild man and a racist who had vowed to her and others to kill a rich. Mm. <sighs> Seattle's historic unsolved assassination was a monumental hate crime, she says, and it was committed by one man. At least one political official, a King County official member who has followed the case from the night of the shooting sides with her. Wow. In the words of Pratt's secretary, Uncle Tom and House were two phrases that Pratt was accustomed to seeing and hearing in messages he received in public meetings. Holy shit. No. And, yeah. In nineteen sixty nine, she told investigators that he regularly received letters saying, in effect, you've gone too far, black boy, and we'll get you while others accused him of being white on the inside. 
Oh my god. She wondered, right, she wondered how angry people would be if they knew that he was fooling around with a white woman. Oh my god, no. Oh my god. (laughs) (sighs) Mm. I would say, oh, how the times have changed, but But they really haven't. (laughs) Cover-ups get layered on cover-ups. That's exactly what happened here. Yes, 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 yes. Seattle in those days was struggling with epic change in race relations and still using the word Negro in unguarded conversations. An especially memorable racial litmus test was unfolding back then at the University of Washington, where white football coach Jim Owens caused an uproar in 69, suspending four of his black players for refusing to pledge 100% loyalty to him. They felt he meted out harsher discipline to to black players than to white. But football fans, mostly white, backed Owens, giving him a booming round of applause the next time he entered Husky Stadium. The issue festered for years, however, and he retired in 74. It wasn't until 2003 at a homecoming game that the aging coach appeared on the field at halftime, took the microphone, and issued a heartfelt apology to his players for any any pain he had caused. Most of the 72,000 fans responded with a standing ovation. Note that they said most. Most. Not all of them. The Queen City, as it's known, as it was then known, was a low-rise, inbred, industrial... Inbred, sorry. Inbred? Yeah, this article says inbred. (laughs) Industrial uh, municipality where people communicated by landline and mail letters pecked out on typewriters. It was a backward time as well for minorities who sought equality in housing and jobs and balance in cities' de facto segregated schools. Pratt's Urban League, much like the NAACP, picked its moments carefully. In education, Pratt saw an opportunity in the 1960s triad plan, a three-phase effort to reorganize Seattle's elementary schools, much to the dismay of white parents. Others weren't happy about his goal to build ghetto political powers, as he put it. Oh my god. Possible only through complete integration of all minorities into American society. Whites would have to learn to share power, Pratt says, instead of withdrawing whenever the balance of power shifts against them. Yeah. Much of this angst took place while Pratt was dealing with his own interracial conflicts, as we said, he'd been having an affair with his white secretary, um, and he had been having the affair with her since she had taken the job in 67. He eventually promised to leave his wife and did for a stretch of time in 68, moving to a shoreline apartment on Queen Anne for two months, but he was torn by his marital and parental responsibilities. And he and his girlfriend accidentally ran into his wife at the movie theater and his wife caused a huge scene and prompted an angry call from Betty to the girlfriend, informing her that she'd become part of one big messy divorce and oh my God. Pratt moved back home. Oh man. Um his wife or he eventually grew jealous and began stalking his secretary when she started dating a traveling shoe salesman oh no oh traveling shoe salesman scary and betty sorry but also what a creep right and because of this betty 
filed for divorce again. <laughs> I'm married to a lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> and he basically says that when he talked to Betty about the divorce, that's when Betty said, if you ask me for a divorce again, if you ever leave me, I'll kill you. Okay, that's what the death threat. Okay, got it, got it, got it. <laughs> and she told the police later that she actually didn't mean it. <laughs> she was like, I didn't mean that. Like hyperbole, please. We all speak out of turn. Um, she died in, in seventy six at the age of forty seven, unfortunately. Say from what? No, she re Yeah, she remarried and she died at forty seven. Oh, that's not good. That um it, when his girlfriend spoke to the FBI, she told them that he was finally prepared to quit the Urban League and marry her. He had just turned mm -hmm. down an offer to become Westchester County, and that's in New York, if you guys don't know. Mm -hmm. um, he had just turned down the offer to become the Westchester County's Urban League Executive direct Director for a hundred bucks. I'd stay off your podcast. Oh, that's my dad, you guys. <laughs> Which he's here right now. <laughs> I'm not giving you a hundred bucks. <laughs> you might as well just sit tight and listen. <laughs> it's almost over. It's fine. Yes. Um, he told the girlfriend that he might take advantage of his front office connections to land a white collar job at Boeing. Um, yeah. And they again had dinner the night before he was killed and we're supposed to have dinner that sunday yeah just think what that like kids? the kids, kids lost their dad to a shooting and then their mom died young jesus it's wild because had he gone to his girlfriend's house he wouldn't have been home he to wouldn't get shot have been home to get shot his wife would have gotten shot it's not good either way oh my god um FBI agents went to go see her two days after the shooting. They really feel like her affair had absolutely nothing to do with his death. Yeah, um, it's not like it was her boyfriend coming in and shooting her. Right. They did yeah. investigate a relative of hers who was a state trooper who didn't necessarily appreciate that his family member was going to marry a black man. Hmm. But... People said that from their experience, more bitterness and hatred came from the black community than from the white community. Because at this time, you got to remember that Martin Luther King is now dead. Yeah. Malcolm X is now dead. Yeah. Black people at this point in time are not at all appreciating his nonviolent approach towards desegregation and, and the civil rights movement and integration yeah yeah they believe that he was moving way too slow mm. and he they saw it as no towing to like white power brokers um they there was one man that stood up at a small gathering to discuss desegregation and basically said they knew how to take care of him. They'll just eliminate him. Oh my god. Uh. Um, 
he had kept saying how paranoid he was getting. Um, the danger of his job was getting to him. There are people, of course, at this point, they're demonstrating against war. They're demonstrating against racism. They're demonstrating against police brutality. At this point, yeah. we're in 1969. We're talking, like, Vietnam, Kent State, Jackson State. He is not only dealing with racial issues, but now he's dealing with the fact that hippies believe that Vietnam is not our war to fight. He's got a lot going on in his community. Mm -hmm. Because if you guys didn't know, Vietnam not being our war, that was really more like a like white, educated college students type of thing. So he's dealing mm -hmm. with that because he's living in a predominantly white neighborhood <laughs> on top of all the other issues that he has. <sighs> um, black contractors and workers were demanding job equality from him. White employers and government officials were very slow to follow federal mandates. Um, people are, you know, getting upset with him, calling him the a father of affirmative action, all this kinds of stuff. Um, and he was basically just sympathetic to all of the causes. Um, in a speech that was given a few days before his death, he said there were 2,200 firms who ought to be hiring at least two unemployed, unemployed black people for every hundred white person they have on their oh. payroll. Lord. Two black people for every hundred white people. Every hundred. <laughs> yeah. <Wow. laughs> um, mm. Instead, they said that black militants wanted to see him banging heads. Mm. Um, again, Hank or Henry Rooney was one of his detractors. He didn't respect Pratt. He said that he was a Negro builder. Um, just really nasty stuff towards him. Mm. They still, to this day, believe that somehow a black contractor was involved. And they believe that that black contractor was related somehow to the Black Panthers. Theories. Theories and... I mean, we don't know for sure. Like, they're saying shit's, the case is closed, but, like, what do we really know? Right. Um, there's also another man named... Oh, God, where'd his name go? Keeve Bray, who was a publisher of the militant Afro-American journal. Um, he was also on top of the FBI list for suspects. Um, and according to the cold case file, he is still considered a suspect. Um, and oddly enough, Keeve Bray and Henry Roney were actually rivals. So we're just going to go kind of all over the map here. Yes. They were actually rivals. Um, Bray had Rooney beaten to a pulp by a guy named Bone Crusher in early September of 69. Um, after Please give me a cool nickname like that one day. Please. Bone Crusher. <laughs> um, he was a school teacher, an activist, and a playwright. He was accused of inciting violence in his journal writings and at one point was suspected of trying to bomb the car of Seattle Mayor 
Storm Brahman, who opposed open housing initiative that was subsequently rejected by voters. Bray was a black Muslim, and he changed his name to Keeve X. Okay, I was going to say, what kind of name is this? Okay, nice yeah, one. Yeah, X. Okay. Um, he was murdered, actually, the next year. Somebody shot him twice when he answered his door. What a way to get people to knock on the door and just, you're gone. Jesus. Um, Police investigated his case as a possible link to Edwin Pratt's murder, but it went cold. Um, In 81, a man named Daniel Carlum walked into the police station and confessed to the murder. Um, Basically, he has said that he had a personal dispute with the Denver black Muslim community. Hmm. Bray as the Pratt murder mastermind is solely circumstantial just as the case against Roni. There's no yeah. evidence that either knew the gunmen and detectives feel that witnesses claims point strongly to Rooney and his one time attorney feels like it's unlikely. Yeah. Uh, honestly, I think that they might have just done it to do it, you know? I mean, usually it's the easiest answer is what actually happened. Yeah. Normally. We all love a good conspiracy, but usually it's just the the easiest shit that came um, out there. There's... This case is wild. There's another suspect. One last suspect. Um... And a white ex-con named Kenneth Moen, who became a prime suspect after witnesses told investigators that Moen claimed that he got Pratt. Which was something that he had promised to do years earlier. His reputed motive was revenge. A white friend of Moen's had been killed by a black man, and Moen supposedly thought that killing Pratt would even the score. Oh, good lord. Okay. Witnesses described Moen after the shooting as frightened, drunk, and hiding out in Snomish County, vowing not to be taken alive. His probation officer felt that Moen was absolutely capable of such a murder. He committed multiple armed robberies and escaped from jail in Idaho. Okay. (laughs) He also at times stayed at a home near Pratt's and was known to have a shotgun. Moen also revealed some knowledge about little-known evidence in the crime scene, telling witnesses that his one big mistake was wearing pointy-toed shoes. The killers, according to the evidence photos, wore such shoes. Oh. Ooh. Okay. Then again, he might have picked up on that detail from media reports. After a long manhunt, he was taken into into custody. He agreed to take a polygraph test. He was asked if he killed Pratt or had been involved in any conspiracy to kill him. He said no. The lie detector showed there was no deception in his answer, and he died in 2005. Dang. All these old cases get me because now everybody's dead. We can't go check. Right. But the... Again, you know, we they tell this story about Tommy's Tommy Kirk and how, you know, 
Daniela, Jordan, you know, all of this stuff. She says that Tommy just did it for white people. Right. It wasn't about anything else. Tommy, but it's also said that Jordan never heard Tommy Kirk mention Roni, Bray, Moen, but he always mentioned Ed Pratt. Mm. There was Mm. nobody else. Tommy had heard about Pratt. Um, He was all over the news, and Tommy said he was going to shoot that rich N-word or words to that effect. She said that money was never the motivation. It was just a monumental hate crime. (sighs) And Pratt's home address was listed in the phone book. All you needed to do was look it up. Of course. Well, and that's based on everything else you said before with that story. That's the one I'm most inclined to believe because it seems the easiest, simplest, Mm -hmm. most out there person bragging, talking about it. You know, all those other things included. I don't know. Jeez Louise. Um, And she continues to tell that same story. Yeah. She said it wasn't about money. I remember him calling that guy a rich n-word he said i'm gonna kill a rich n-word and that's why he did it and then he ends up dead oh man her late husband who was mike jordan the getaway driver supported that theory when he gave a statement in 1995 um he said that tommy kirk killed pratt because he was a white he was a black dude in a white neighborhood yeah he never disclosed his own role in the Pratt murder, but he confessed to other inmates while he was in prison. Mm. And the story that he tells is exactly the same. Yeah. Mm. Um, she said mm. that she was in her home that night when Mike, who owned the Buick matching the getaway car description, walked in with Bart Gray and Tommy Kirk it was just hours after his murder. She'd been chatting with a friend who died from cancer um, not long after he gave a statement to the investigators. Dave was there, and I recall they came in all wired and freaked out, very excited. She did not say outright that she knew if Kirk had murdered anyone, but she said that he never talked of money, and I would have remembered if he mentioned money. Yeah. Her husband never flashed any extra cash. Um, we made money selling Dexatin, also Desbitol, and writing prescriptions for drugs. Believe it or not, such a thing wasn't legal then. We were never broke. The only reason I never swallowed any drugs was because my mother prayed for me daily. Oh. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, she said that her husband was wildly in love with some Texas whore and if he had any money that he would have spent it on her. Um, she said that that night, um, they came in, they were pumped up. She didn't know if it was cause they were loaded, wired or whatever, but they were carrying a 12 gauge shotgun. She said they sat down, did some dope looked at the shotgun she said yeah i physically touched it um they took the gun and went down to the cellar um she said tommy kirk kind of scared her she had enough sense to know that if she messed with tommy she was screwed they put the gun in the crawl space then eventually they buried it 
They came back upstairs and again, Tommy Kirk started doing dope. And it was like, it was, believe me, she said, I've never gotten this because he had, he'd take like this and he'd just fill it up and he'd take a syringe and he'd get it in there and fill it up. And he was so gross and bam, he just did it until he was gone. Nope. No, no, no. Um, she said that he did All tons. All the other stuff though, unless it was on a, if she's remembering the wrong night. It sounds like shit that you do to cover up a murder that you just Right. Did. He just took tons and tons of dope. Find um, that gun and bury that gun. Show it off, brag for a minute. You see him on edge. Like, right. Yeah. Um, she buried the gun. She did all this stuff. They did all this stuff. Um, Kirk was arrested for breaking into a Queen Anne home. He fired three warning shots at another drug dealer just two weeks before Pratt's murder. Um, everybody speculates that Kirk did it because of money, but she says that it was never true. People even speculated that Kirk did it and used the money to buy a Corvette. And Daniela says, the only Corvette I ever remember Tommy driving was a stolen candy apple red one. It was from California and he flipped it. Oh my God. Oh my God. What a weird life. It doesn't matter. He only lived four days beyond right. the murder of I mean, Pratt. Murder happened, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he was yeah. murdered by Gray, his co-conspirator. Yeah. She's yeah. always. The story is wild. A little bit. Um. Absolutely. I didn't know anything about this either until you just told me right now. Like, the story, this is my first time hearing any of this. The story is wild, and Daniela's story is wild, but it seems reasonable. Like, yeah. if I were to murder somebody, I would be like, I gotta do whatever I possibly can to just forget about this. I just murdered somebody. Again, up and vanished podcast. Up and vanished. <laughs> Same kind of shit. You just go through and you start hearing all these townspeople talking about this murder and what they heard somebody bragging about, somebody else talking about this, while I saw my brother do blah blah blah, and you're like, holy crap. Yeah. Um, and many years after the thing happened, so same. She said that Mike died in 2006 without ever disclosing to the police what happened. Um, she reiterates that she feels that Kirk thought up the killing on his own and just got her husband yeah. and his friends to help out. Um, she said that she spent a lot of time in her mind and she can't come up with any more information. Just a lot of bad memories of that time frame. Mm. And the investigator, Larry Gossett, said that of all the theories that they discussed, I'm sorry, the council member, Larry Gossett, says of all the theories that were discussed, that one just seems more like the truth. Um, today Pratt's body is at St. Mark's. It's memorialized by a park and a fine arts center in Yesler Way in Seattle. Both sites bear his name. And Gossett, who is one of the council members of Seattle, says that they hope that the community never forgets him. Um, they wish that the murder case would just be closed. He says it's been five decades. There's enough out there now for investigators to solve it. Yeah. Lord. Uh... Well, thanks for that uplifting story. You're the best. You're all very welcome. <laughs> but the, oh, the fun God. part about that is that the Pratt's Fine Arts Center 
Mm-hmm. So. Um. And the Shoreline School District's Edwin Pratt Early Learning Center. The Pratt's Fine Arts Center serves as a lasting tribute to him. Um, and the Fine Arts Center honors his memory by continuing to pursue its mission of making arts accessible to everyone of all ages, all colors, all skill sets, and all backgrounds. Cool. So there's the that, good news. That is good. Thank you. That You're very uh, welcome. John, John says this is one of those wild and convoluted mysteries that would be a good Netflix docu series. Sure would. It really would. Yeah, well, whole two episodes on just that affair alone. <laughs> whole episode on the wife. <laughs> oh my god! Follow up with the children, and then go through each suspect. Holy crap! Ooh, that's a new follower. We have a new follower. Hey, new follower. Welcome. Thank you. We're glad you're here. I like uh, Marissa. Loser, racist, drug addicts take the life of an activist and community advocate. Shameful history lessons. It truly is. Yep. Um, my uh, dad said X because we don't remember or know what our African names are. Mm, Very true. Yeah. And Marissa said he probably bragged in prison as racist loser. <laughs> Pratt's yeah. Art College. Um, no, it is not an art college. It's just a fine arts center. Mm-hmm. Um, like in the middle of the community. Yep. Which is still cool. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thanks, Flip. You guys, on Sunday, we're going to be covering... Is it Anna Marie? Yeah, that's you, right? That's the research I said. <laughs> Yeah, I'm hoping that's it. <laughs> it's another wild story. You will absolutely want to chime in on Sunday. Uh, I was going to say, a- that is another weird one. <laughs> it's Look, and I found some good shit digging through that one for once. I was like, this isn't just run-of-the-mill crap. There's all sorts of Now that case is weird as hell. Oh, oh, and I found good articles. That it's good storytelling. So I'm excited to share that with you guys. So that's Sunday at 8.30 Eastern Standard Time. So... Like we say in our gaming group, that would be 7.30 p.m. God's time in, in Texas. Um, if y'all want to join in. I know, we got the devil's time over here. Um, but yeah, so we're going to be covering that. And then you're also going to have um, another secret word for the uh, hidden phrase that we have going on. So Sunday episodes, you get one of the secret words, solve that puzzle at the end of the season, and you get a prize. So join us for the Sunday episode. This Sunday they get three words, don't they? Two words? Two. Two okay. words. You get two words this Sunday. Yes. So we covered Bruce Johnson and Edwin Pratt today. Sunday we will be covering Anna Maria Vega. And then next Wednesday, Miss Ange is... I'm sorry, Thursday. Why do I keep saying Wednesday? I'm never going to get it. I'm never going to get it. I'm never going to get it. Uh, Anyway, next Thursday... I can't wait till we go back to Wednesdays because then I'm going to consistently say Thursday. Thursday. (laughs) We're going to be like big sign next, Woodstock, right? yes next thursday angel will be covering woodstock and y'all i have friends arriving from out of town that night so it's gonna be a quickie but it's gonna be fun because there were some deaths at Woodstock. yes and then <laughs> after <laughs> that is mm-hmm. we we get one more week of um guest host no, do we have a week of guest hosts for call? I'll be camping. I'll be camping. I I have notes. 
that I'm going to give our guest host, but it's that that following Sunday. Okay, following I was going to say, well, morning. Woodstock is you. The next one is me, yeah. so that's fine. Correct. After that is me, and then the next one is supposed to be you, but that's fine. I'll cover it if I have to, because that Sunday you definitely have to be back. Um, I will be back. Yeah. I'm excited. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, because then we'll be getting more into, again, our civil rights movements. So next week we kind of take a, like, a little break from it. We're like, let's give you guys a little break. And then we come back and we hit you guys hard with another civil rights movement story. And then we just back to back smack you guys with serial killers. <laughs> yeah. So if you like the history stuff, hang tight. We got more for you. If you like serial killers, buckle up. They're coming. Because they're coming. <laughs> and then, of course, we're going to end the season off with our Hunt a Killer box six, our final box, where we solve Hell murder. Yeah. Hell yeah. Thank you. Wow, you guys, this Thank is a you. long season. We have like six more episodes. Normally <laughs> we're like, good, halfway done. No, we're not. No, we're not. <laughs> well, we're getting there. It's close, but jeez Louise. Mm. Um, I oh, say follow the- up for local news. Come come see the uh, complete works of William Shakespeare abridged in Palm Coast this weekend, closing weekend. Come see the show. Yes. John says that the 18th is the guest host. He would know because he's the guest Thank host. Thank you. He's... <laughs> <It's> John. <laughs> John's on top of his shit. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> yeah, we'll send you some notes. Thank you. Yeah, thank you guys. <laughs> History and serial killers. Woot. I know. It's like all my favorite things just wrapped up in a tiny package. It's a good time. All right. Good. Yeah. So you guys know the deal. Be safe. Be healthy. Be aware of your surroundings. Yes, Dad. My dad's calling me Pia. Oh, this is sweet. Be safe. Be healthy. Be aware of your surroundings. Yes. Take care of yourself take care of others be kind to yourself that's extremely important and be kind to others thank you oh and thank you to the last electric rodeo band for allowing us to use their song bronze age of horror at the end of each episode if you want to find out more about the last electric rodeo band go to lastelectricrodeo.com or find them on facebook at last electric rodeo Alrighty, you guys Have a wonderful rest of your week. We'll see you on Sunday at 8.30. Peace out, Cub Scouts. Bye.